0: Anaheim itself was a great trip. I mentioned it earlier, the weather was beautiful. 80 degrees and sunny every day, 65 with a breeze at night. It was perfect. The convention was good. The In-N-Out Burger was awesome. All you Whataburger people don't know what you're talking about. I'm just telling you that. Sorry, Katie Shaw. It's just true. It's, not, it's good. But there was one part of the trip that was not great, and that was our flight back. First of all, it's a flight back, right? You're leaving the sun and all the fun we had there. There's some kind of like, man, it would be nice to have another couple of days or we we didn't get to do this or that. Secondly, it's a three and a half hour nonstop flight from John Wayne Airport in Santa Ana, California to Nashville after a week of just exhaustion. And lastly, we flew southwest, and even though I checked in at the moment that we could check in 24 hours beforehand, we got B-40's boarding passes, which meant the four of us all sat separately on the plane. Ava, Maddie, Susan, and I sat separately. Ava sat by herself in the middle of a row, right? Right? And that's not the worst part. They put me next to the two largest human beings I've ever met in my life in the middle of the row, Right? That's not the worst part. Ava was the worst part, all right? Ava and Maddie, they were brave. We we got to see the beautiful side of people that refused to move seats to allow a mother and her nine-year-old daughter to sit together as they insisted on their need for that particular seat. And then we sat for three and a half hours. In that place. But the truth is, it could have been worse because it could have been instead of flying from west to east, we were flying from east to west because I don't know if you know this or not, but it takes longer to fly from east to west than from west to east. In fact, if you just look at the flights from New York to Los Angeles and Los Angeles to New York, it's almost an hour's difference in the same route going from east to west than west to east. And you think, well, that shouldn't be so. They just fly the same speed. They get up there and fly. In fact, there were people that when flights started happening, they thought it would be the opposite because they thought as the earth was rotating, you would meet a point over here somehow. But it's not that way. Do you know the reason that it's quicker to fly from west to east than east to west? The jet stream. When you're flying from the west to the east, there's a tailwind with you. The jet stream is pushing you along even as the plane is moving. And it is easier to fly that when when you're flying the other way, there's a headwind. There's something pushing against you, something preventing you or making it more difficult. As we think about Father's Day, I just want to make a statement to you that are dads in the room or will be dads in the room In the life of your children, when it comes to their spirituality, you will either be a tailwind or a headwind for your children. You will either be a helping wind that helps them towards where they're going, or you will be one that will be an obstacle to them on the way. And here's the reality. It's a responsibility. You can't give over to someone else. I just want to be real honest with us in this room and to the dads who are in this room. First of all, I say thank you to the dads who are in this room. I made a comment to Daniel backstage. It's a fascinating thing to me in the year of a church when you look at ups and downs attendance wise. Mother's Day is almost one of the highest attendance Sundays of the year and Father's Day is always one of the lowest. We have an issue with men in our culture stepping into their God-defined roles as dads for spiritual development. And the relationship between dads and children are extremely important. It's not more important than mothers, but it's extremely important. And it's not Mother's Day, so we're going to talk about dads. And when it's right, and it's encouraging, and it's pushing your children towards the Lord, it's like a tailwind in their life that gives them what they're now. Now, That tailwind, we're going to talk about arrows today. Once the arrow is launched, the tailwind can help, but it may get impacted by other factors. And so it's not a guarantee, but it just makes it easier for them to fly towards their target of godliness and what God would have them to do. If you're not encouraging them in the Lord, no matter what other good you may be doing, you are a headwind to their spiritual life, and it can be devastating. I read some quotes this week that just shows the importance both of headwinds and tailwinds in the life of men. You may who Burt Reynolds is? Smokey. Isn't that Smokey and the Bandit, right? Right? We got a story with Wanda Powers about that that we won't tell yet in here, but a Wednesday night crew knows what that is. Burt Reynolds said this one time, I would have killed for a hug from my father. This is a man that seems to be as successful as you could imagine at one time in his life. And all he really wanted was that. Kind of the other end of the spectrum, entertainment-wise, is a guy named Tupac Shakur. In his most famous song, Dear Mama, he says this about his dad. I had no love for the man because the coward wasn't there. Men have a huge impact on their relationships with their children. And sometimes we don't even know the impact we're making. I read a story this week, and don't put the quote up yet from Henry Brooks, but there was a a story that I read this week about Charles and Henry Brooks, and this is like 150, 200 years ago, it's a while back, and they went out fishing one day, and they fished all day, and they didn't catch anything, and both of them wrote in their journal at night, and Charles Brooks, the dad, wrote in his journal, spent all day on the pond, fishing for hours, caught absolutely nothing. What a waste today. This is what Henry Brooks, his son, wrote. Went fishing with my father today, the most glorious day of my life. We don't understand sometimes the impact that we have. Today's song on our summer mixtape is called Home Sweet Home. And it comes from Psalm 127. And the idea behind it is this, that no matter what kind of house you live in, you can have a great home dedicated to the Lord. Psalm 127, and this is what it says. Unless the Lord builds the house... Those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth, Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Home, sweet home. By the way, this wasn't up on the screen, but if you have your copy of God's Word open, you'll see that there is an a introduction or, or a tagline up there about what this is. It says that it is a song of ascent of Solomon. That's important. It's a song of ascent. What does that mean? Well, there from chapter, I mean, from Psalm 120 for the next several verses and chapters of psalms, the next several psalms. There are songs that are listed here that most scholars now believe were songs that they sang on caravan up to Jerusalem, Song of Ascent. And I've not been to Jerusalem, but I've read stories, seen pictures, seen maps. And it is on a hill. And so everyone had to go up to Jerusalem. So as they were ascending to Jerusalem on a particular festival for the right of worshiping God, they would sing these traveling songs. Now, our kids today have no understanding what it means to travel without your own music. Amen? Amen? I mean, when I was growing up, I did at one point gather a CD Walkman. That's right. That would skip on a regular basis, but you had to put four or five pillows or you know pads there that I could then put the bulky headphones, those little, the ones that are trendy, cool now, but those ones that were terrible then, that you would put on that had the orange. You know what I'm talking about? The orange. If you heal me, just say amen here in the place. Four of us, good, that's good, all right? And I would listen every now and then, but only yet one CD. None of this shuffle on on iTunes or on your Apple Music or Spotify. None of this watch a movie while you're driving. It was license plate games and 99 bottles of Coke on the wall because we were a Baptist family. I never got past 90 before my dad was like, quit it. That's enough. And so as they traveled up, as they traveled to the destination of Jerusalem, they would sing these songs together. Solomon's uniquely gifted because this psalm is about building and protecting. And Solomon was a builder. He built the temple in Jerusalem, which is one of the wonders of the ancient world. It took him seven and a half years, the finest material on earth. I was listening, reading recently in our year through the Bible, and it talks about how they, they put gold over everything on the outside. Can you imagine seeing that in its splendor? Seven and a half years to build the temple. Then he built his own palace. By the way, it took him 13 years to build the palace, and it may have been better than the temple, which probably shows priority issues, but that's another sermon. He had a palace in the forest of Lebanon that was his summer home. He built another palace for Pharaoh's daughter, one of his wives. He built cities, entire cities, Hazor and Gezer and Megiddo and Beth Horan and Tadmor. He was a massive builder, successful in every way in that it would seem. And relationally, which is also part of this psalm, he was a train wreck. Anybody remember how many wives he had? Seven hundred. Seven hundred. Three hundred other women that were not his wives, that were part of his harem... Socrates, by the way, once said that he encouraged all of his young men to get married. He said, if you find a good one, you'll be much happier in life. If you find a bad one, you'll be a great philosopher. (laughs) Solomon was a great philosopher. After his life, Israel would split. Civil war would ensue. And the nation would never be joined together again under a king because his family could not hold it together. And it's almost as if in this place he may be looking back and saying, here are the lessons I wish I would have followed. Four things, and we're going to do these quickly because I know Noah spoiled you last week and went short. First thing is, we're going to, if you want to live a life that is a tailwind for your kids spiritually, you have to choose the right foundation. I mean, this is right there in verse one, twice. Unless the Lord builds the house, it's built in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman can do all he wants to, but it is in vain. Unless the Lord This is some people call a wisdom psalm, just like Psalm 1 we talked about two weeks ago. There are two choices in life, it says. One is to build on the foundation of the Lord, and the other is to not. And those that do not are not going to be successful. We'll talk in a minute about the difference in this passage between the word vain that it's talking about and the word in the Ecclesiastes passages that use the word vain over and over again. But here is the general idea. If you build your foundation of your life Of your family, of your career, of anything in your life, on any other foundation than the Lord building it, it will fail eventually. I have a picture of a large building in San Francisco. This is the Millennium Tower in San Francisco. It's the tallest residential building in San Francisco. It is 58 stories, although if you go to the top floor, it will say it is the 60th floor because they don't have a 13 or a 44 for superstitious reasons. It's 645 feet tall. It cost $350 million to build. It was estimated in development cost in everywhere to be somewhere around $500 million. They sold the last residency in 2010. And they sold every unit in the building For a total of somewhere around 750 million. If you can build something for 500 million and make a 250 million dollar profit, you're doing something right. You would think. In May of 2016, residents got notified that the building was both sinking and leaning. That's a fun letter to get. I wonder if that was just a general letter in the mail, if that was an email, like how was that? People have wondered what happened there and the answer was pretty clear. One San Francisco architect said, we know around here that unless your foundation is properly affixed to the bedrock that is underneath the topsoil, it will not survive in San Francisco. This was a foreign contractor, meaning outside of the city, and they did not go deep into the bedrock. They said that the consistency of what's underneath the there, right before the bedrock, is sand, and I could not help but think of Jesus and the man that built his house on the sand and the man that built his house on the rock. What foundation are you building your life and your family upon? In America, it seems that we're all about happiness in our family. We want everybody to be happy. And that's great. We do everything we can to make our kids happy. We do everything we can to make each other happy. We do everything. We buy whatever we think needs to be happy. But at some point in our life, life is going to slap us in the face and realize that life is not intended for us to be happy all the time. And when that happens, what are we going to do? Some families are built on self-esteem, building your kids up, making them feel good about themselves. Not in the way that God has called them and who they are, but just general. You're good enough. You're strong enough. And at some point in their life, they will not be good enough. They will not be strong enough. Some families are built on the foundation of success. Good grades, athletic achievement. Societal impressions. You can tell a lot of times what it is that your family is built upon by what you praise, what you attend, what you encourage, what you sacrifice for. What is your family, if we were to pull them, and we weren't in a church where they're going to say Jesus in church because that's what you do in church, if we were just to have a random pollster ask your children what's most important in your family, what would their answer be? Their athletics, their schoolwork, your family status in the community, dad's job, mom's career. What would they say is the most important thing? What does your checkbook say is the most important thing? What does your schedule say is the most important thing? Because it's easy to sit here today and say, we're building our family on the foundation of the rock of Jesus Christ. But we spend five weekends out of every six doing something else. And the only time we praise our children is when they hit a home run or they make that A or they do something that society sees as good. If we're going to build families and be tailwinds for our kids, we have to first choose the right foundation. Secondly, we need to reject empty activities. This is verses 1 and 2. It says, unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor over it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays alert in vain. In vain you get up and stay up late, working hard to have enough food. Yes, he gives sleep to the one he loves. In vain that you rise up early. It's in vain that you go to late rest. It's in vain that you eat the bread of anxious toil. In fact, in the original language in that verse 2 there that is on the screen here, it says in vain to start each one of those things. In vain you get up early. In vain you go to bed late. In vain you eat the bread of anxious toil. It's useless. That word vain means useless, empty, empty. Vapid. I don't know what that means, but it sounds good. Vapid. 1851 at the Crystal Palace Exhibition in Hyde Park, London, they had an expedition. They had an event. They had people come from all over the world and at that moment steam was all the rage. There were steam plows and steam locomotive and steam looms, steam organs, steam cannons that shot real cannonballs. People were wowed by steam and steam. The most impressive machine there was a machine that had over 7,000 moving parts with steam power. And when it turned on because of steam, pulleys pulled and whistles whined and bells rang and gears turned. But in the end they asked, what does it produce? And it was said, nothing. It's all literally bells and whistles. Someone has said quoting that, that that's the way worry and empty activities are in our lives. In this passage, it talks about things that are built and guarded. It goes to the heart of what we're trying for. We're trying for fulfillment. We're trying for making. We're trying for designing. We're trying for protecting. We're trying for maintaining. We want to build and protect and maintain in our lives. Solomon understood that. In fact, if you go and look at any of the archaeological finds of any of the cities that Solomon built, it's interesting because Solomon knew that the Lord had told him, if you turn away from me, then I will no longer protect you. If you leave the foundation, of me, I will no longer protect you. In fact, when he dedicated the temple, he said, if you were any of the kings, turn away from me and this place will be a place of ruin. I will not protect it. And so Solomon, interestingly enough, when he built a city, they have discovered a architectural uh, difference about his cities than anywhere else. Every one of his cities had something they call Solomon's gate. It was four interlocking gates and all those interlocking gates, you would get through one gate and have to turn and get through another gate and turn and get through another gate and turn. There were four times you had to get through a gate before you could ever get into the city. And a pish, positioned above those gates were archers that were waiting, not only with archery ready to go, with bows and arrows ready to rain down on you. They also poured you hot oil on top when you were walking through. What's interesting about those finds is, I just said they're archaeological finds. We didn't know about them because every city that Solomon built was destroyed. Because Solomon and his family turned away from the Lord. It says in this word that it is vain. The word picture here is, why do you strive so hard Stay up so late, get up so early, work so hard, when if you're not doing it in the presence and on the foundation of what the Lord is doing in your life, it is empty, fruitless, useless. You compare it with Ecclesiastes, the word vain is the favorite word in Ecclesiastes. Not exac- exactly this word, but it's in the word family. In the book of Ecclesiastes, there are 22 times that it is used as vanity, two times as vain, and two times as the superlative vanity of vanity, all as vanity. And the point Solomon makes in Ecclesiastes is a little different here. In Ecclesiastes, it says you're going to get all this stuff, you're going to gain all this stuff, you're going to find all this stuff, and when you do, you're going to find out it is empty. It is Jim Carrey that says, I wish everyone in their lives would be able to get everything they ever dreamed of or wanted to discover that that is not the answer. It's vain. In this passage, it's saying, it's not only that you'll get there and you'll discover it's not what you expected, it's that it won't get there because it's not going to last. Do you ever stop and think about The true significance of what you're doing. Three questions for you to ask yourself and really fast. Number one, how has God most gifted me to glorify him and meet the needs of others? You see, we're all created for a purpose with a reason and a design. So how has God created me? Secondly, how am I exercising and developing those gifts? What am I doing to make myself better in those? And what am I doing to use them? And the third thing, am I building what God desires? That's in your career, that's in your family, that's in your life. Because if you're not, then it's empty activities. Third thing, we need to avoid unnecessary anxiety. That's what that phrase in there is about the bread. In some places, it's called the bread of sorrow. In one translation, it says, why are you working to have enough food? The idea is that you are eating and drinking, and you're worried about it all the time, and you have this tireless trying that leads to nowhere, this tiring effort that goes nowhere. And here's the thing about anxiety or worry in our life. Jesus talks about this in the New Testament. First of all, it is completely unproductive. University of Wisconsin did a study about people's concerns and worries, and they discovered that 40% of what people worry about never happen. 30% are things in the past that you cannot change now anyways. Quick math, that's 70%. 12% of what we worry about is the criticism of others, most of which is untrue or unwarranted. 10% is about personal health. The crazy thing about that is the more we worry about our personal health, the worse our personal health becomes. And 8% are actual concerns that we can do something about. It's unproductive, it doesn't do anything. Secondly, it's unhealthy. You can get physically ill literally from worry. In Great Britain there was a study of 500 patients and they, with vision problems and one third of them they directly tied to nothing but worry. Northwestern did a study and found that worry in our lives blocks the flow of saliva into our mouths which causes tooth decay. A study of 5,000 students found that those that were the most tend to worry had lower grades than those that didn't. So if you want to be someone that can't see and has terrible teeth and makes failing grades, just worry a lot. And the last thing is that it is unnecessary. That's what that little line there is that says, he gives sleep to the one he loves. The point of that is that he will give rest to his children because they can rest in him. We need to build on the right foundation. We need to avoid tasks that are empty. We need to avoid anxiety. And lastly, and we'll do this fast, we need to be intentional. That's the whole point of the arrows. It tells us in this passage that children are a heritage from the Lord. That word heritage can be translated in multiple ways. It actually is the word that is used in the Old Testament most often for the land that God is giving to his people. It's their inheritance. It is what they are getting. He's saying that your children are what will press on without you into the future. It is what will protect your legacy in the future. It is who you are into the future. If you boil life down to the irreducible minimum for us as human beings, it is about relationships. God has created us to be interdependent and our spiritual commitment to Him has to play itself out in our relationships and specifically in our marriage and in our parenting. The idea behind that word heritage is that it is God's best gift, our inheritance, that they are on loan from God to launch into the destiny of the future. One translator translates that word that children are heritage from the Lord as children are our assignment from the Lord. The most valuable assets we have are the children that we are raising. Now can I just say something to you as a church family outside of the family units that we have? That is also true for us as a church the most valuable assets that we have as a church are the next generation that we're developing. And while we have a beautiful building, and I'm thankful for it, and we have a great legacy and a great history, if we do not invest properly in the next generation, all of that won't matter in a few years. For dads, for moms, the most valuable assets we have are the children. That God has entrusted to us. they are arrows. It says shot out by a father. That comes out of a relationship. Brian Loritz who is a pastor in North Carolina. Says that I cannot impact anything deeply. That I am not related to intimately. Which means we have to be involved. And a part of our children's life. Intentionally, he uses arrows here. Why? Well, a few things about arrows in their day. They were the fastest weapon you could find. They go quicker than anything else. And I don't know about you that are parents. Maybe your kids are grown and gone. Maybe you're in the midst of it. Maybe you got preschoolers. Here's what I'll tell you. The time that you have with your children is shorter than you think. We have a limited time. By the way, it says they're arrows, not boomerangs. Can I get an amen, parents, in the house of the Lord? You, you can do that later when your kids aren't around, all right? They're shot out. They're to go. In fact, we are at some point to release them and let them go. And the goal is that we have been an impactful place in their life and that we are the tailwind that sends them on it says that arrows were aimed they weren't all so quick they were aimed they had a purpose they had a place they were trying to hit they had a goal in mind and there's distance the arrows would get places that no one else could get to they would be able to go faster and further and longer and that's true of our legacy and our children my children will see days i pray to the lord farther along down the line In time than I will. My children can already impact this generation. That is coming now better than I can. Because they are part of it. They are missionaries in their own generation. And as I am shooting them out, as I am pushing them out, my goal is that they would be on fire. They would be arrows in the hands of God for the purposes of God. And what your aim is, it should be not that they get a successful job, not that they have a lot of money, not that they even have great families. Although those are all great secondary issues. My main concern for my kids is that they are focused in living a life for the Lord. What is your aim? Because here's what I want to tell you. If you don't have a purpose and an aim for your kids, the enemy does. And he is winning in the hearts and minds of dads in our society far more than he should. Good men, brave men, great men. don't have a clue about what it means to aim for the Lord's objective. Steve Farrar writes about this, and this is what he says. If a man is passive and indifferent to the things of God and the spiritual leadership of his home, then attack is not necessary. He is already neutralized. I don't want to be a neutralized dad. I want to be a dad that sends my kids, at least with a tailwind. I don't want to be an impediment to them. I want to be a boost for them. As they approach what God has for them. One of my favorite commentaries on this passage is a personal letter. From a great missionary by the name of Jim Elliott. Some of you know Jim Elliott's story. I've shared it before. A guy that went, lost his life literally trying to share the gospel. With a group of people that had never heard the gospel before. Aboriginal people in South America. His wife and others would go back and share the gospel with that group. And they would come to Jesus but he lost his life. And it was time for him to go. His parents were not happy about him going. At all. They knew the danger. They worried about it. But I want you to read what Jim Elliot wrote to his parents. He said, I do not wonder that you were saddened at the word of my going to South America. This is nothing else than what the Lord Jesus warned of us when he told the disciples that they must become so infatuated with the kingdom and following him that all other allegiances must become as though they were not. He continues. And he never excluded the family tie. In fact, those loves which we regard as closest, he told us, must become as hate in comparison with our desires to uphold his cause. Now look what he does next. Grieve not then if your sons seem to desert you, but rejoice rather seeing the will of God done gladly. And then he references Psalm 127. Remember how the psalmist described children? He said that they were as a heritage from the Lord and that every man should be happy who had his quiver full of them. And what is a quiver full of but arrows? And what are arrows for but to shoot? So with the strong arms of prayer, draw the bowstring back and let the arrows fly, all of them, straight at the enemy's host. Man, if you can't amen that, I don't know what's going on in your life. Next part, part, this is the end. Give of thy sons to bear the message glorious. Give of their wealth to speed them on their way pour out thy soul for them in prayer victorious and all thou spendest Jesus will repay. My prayer is that we will be a people that would be able to get a letter like that. The goal of a dad is to get that letter. I know you're scared dad, but this is what God's called me to do. So pull back the bowstring and let it go. In fact, that's what I want to just leave up on the screen here is that part of the letter. And my prayer is today is that we with strong arms of prayer draw the bowstring back and let the arrows fly of our children for the glory of God and for the sake of His kingdom. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the truth that You care about us enough to remind us That unless you build it, it's built in vain. And Lord, to remind us that you have given us our children for a time, a short time, and they are an inheritance to us. I pray for dads in this room, Lord, with the weight of the responsibility that is on us. Lord, I pray for moms in this room who are raising children without dads in their family. Lord, I pray that all of us, as parents in this room, as grandparents in this room, as those who will be parents in this room, Lord, would understand our calling to be stewards of the inheritance that you have given us, and that we would pull back those bowstrings with prayer and hurl the arrows forward for your plan. I pray during this time of response, if those that need to come and pray, maybe dads in this room that just need to say, I don't care what people think. I gotta be better. I gotta do do better here. I gotta build better. I gotta have a better foundation. I gotta avoid useless activities. I gotta quit worrying about everything, and I've gotta be intentional with my kids. Lord, I pray that in this moment they would just respond. Lord, there's someone here that's never given their life to you. Lord, I pray, no matter if they had tailwind or headwind, parents, relationships, Lord, that if today is the day And they've come to this place and they haven't received you as their Savior. Lord, I pray that they would in this moment. They would confess to you their need for you. They would confess their own sin, their own shortcoming, the fact that they have done things that are wrong in your sight. Lord, that even in this moment, after confessing their sin, they would believe in your Son Jesus as their Lord and Savior who died for their sins and rose again, that they would believe in that. And, Lord, that in this moment they would confess you as Savior and Lord, both in their heart, Lord, and then in a moment with their mouth. Lord, I pray during this response time, if there are those that need to come and accept Christ or just have, that you would bring them forward. There are those that need to take a step of faith of leadership in their family or just in a step of faith to say it's time to be baptized. Lord, I pray that would happen here. And most of all, Lord, we pray that we would be a church that is committed to seeing the next generation launched for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.